In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Today is the baptism of Christ. If you look at your nicely prepared <coughs> order of service, you, however, will see it listed as Epiphany too. And then take a look down the column on that first page to the collect, and it says the baptism of Christ. You may wonder if you're being confronted once again with the Anglican love of equivocation to try to say the same thing in as many ways that sound different enough that different people who believe different things can still somehow find themselves agreeing at least in saying the same thing. That's the Anglican project somehow, as Dr. Milliner was unfolding for us in the last hour. The need to somehow embrace the greatest possible diversity of human opinion and of the human heart as much as we can in good conscience unite it in our received responsibility to preach the word of God in season and out of season. The baptism of Christ is a very important day in the liturgical year. We don't usually mess around with it. But if you are looking down at the font in anticipation of an actual baptism happening, today you're in for a bit of a wait. Not this year. We'll talk about baptism, but we just won't do it. The water is there, ready, holy water in the font. All it needs is the words to be spoken and one more thing, someone to come forward and receive those words allow that water to be poured over them. We don't have that person today, so we wait. What is baptism? From the Anglican understanding, we have an answer in our catechism. It's a sacrament, which means it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. The outward part of the sign, called the signifier, is water, the water in that little a bowl down there, which is poured over, sprinkled on, or immersed in. Good luck with that. That which is signified is twofold, death and life. Death to sin and new birth, new life to righteousness, to being again in right, renewed, restored, recapitulated relationship to God. Now our catechism goes on to lay out two other things that are necessary preconditions for the reception of the effectual grace that baptism confers. They have to be there somehow in the potential receiver. And those two are one, repentance, that is turning away from sin, and two, faith, and that is trusting in the promises of God. Repentance and faith, turning away and turning to. Well, that's the Anglican position on baptism, succinctly stated in the 17th century, and they could have stopped there, but with an Anglican desire to embrace what they might see as controversy, the catechism goes on to try to justify the baptism of infants, since, as everyone with a shred of common sense has long ago observed, they noted this in the 16th century, the children, the infants, are too young to repent or have faith. 
Now, the answer they have to this dilemma frustrates our 21st century desire for some kind of very clear statement that will guarantee a ritual technical efficacy to what we do with the water. We need to know what the heck we think we're doing and what the heck we think God has to do with what we are doing down there with the water. And ideally, we want it to be like a prescription from the pharmacist. You just take it and it works on you. It will always take. But we can't say that about the water because we have faith and repentance drawn in. How do we justify that children who are infants can either repent or have faith? The pre-enlightenment authors of this catechism take us away from simple mechanical answers. It's not about the water. It's not even about our words, if you like. And they take us into community the covenant community of the church, the context in which the child must find his or her at least penultimate meaning. And community means family, family in which the child will grow up, the bigger family of the church and the godparents and what we now call sponsors. And there the matter rests. Looking at it pragmatically, as Anglicans are wont to do, they say we observe that your best chance of acquiring the repentance and the faith which precede new birth is to be in the company of those who already manifest those gifts. Now, fair enough. We are segueing now to the state of Jesus, who, undergoing his immersion in the muddy rivulet we call the Jordan, likewise seems to go into it with his own set of preconditions. And if his preconditions are ours, he's already satisfied the requirements. He already has faith in the promises of God. Time will prove that out. And he already has, if not repentance, a strong tendency to the turning away from any possible to say nothing of any actual sin already built in. But whether he actually requires or acquires a new birth to righteousness when he undergoes this baptism, a renewed relationship with God gives us pause. And yet he does. He places himself on the banks of that river. He allows himself to be immersed. He allows the whole process to go through. And as he bobs up, as the spirit shows from heaven, as a dove, he hears the Someone hears the father say, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So maybe it's just as well he did it. At any rate, that would be fine enough for you or me if we heard it on a baptismal Sunday. And we assuredly come into this in need of the grace that baptism confers. And yet Jesus, it seems, does not. He who will become sin so that we might be the ones to become God's righteousness is now without sin. And he won't get sin until on the cross he gets it from us. All of it, apparently, committed, omitted, past, present, and to come. That's quite a transaction, especially for a God who majors traditionally in impassibility, in the possibility that he never suffers anything at all suffers in the sense of allows things to be done to him. 
Jesus always is the doer, the one doing. Yet here, Jesus is emphatically being done too. And in Matthew's gospel, you will recall the elaboration of this moment leaves no doubt. Quote, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented it, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What we see is the activity of God in Christ creating its own passion, if you like, that form of working which destines itself to waiting. Let me explain. Jesus' baptism, his being done too in this muddy river, is the very first step to a very active ministry of doing, a public ministry of Jesus doing the works of God, the Son doing that which he sees the Father doing. And in that doing, however his interventions are received, Jesus very much exemplifies what we would all be about too active, productive, efficient, and efficacious in our work for the kingdom. We eagerly await that, well done, my good and faithful servant. And whatever the status of works in the Reformed as opposed to the Catholic Church, we long to hear that. That will be our reward. Our culture would have it no other way anyway. If you don't work, you don't eat. And yet in a world in which there is less and less to do, and more and more to consume, and we are, in whatever way, whether we like it or not, becoming more and more worked into some great system, whether the military-industrial complex, or the national security state, or the welfare state, or the deep state, whether clinging to our inherited patriarchal privileges or bravely preparing to surrender them at the next change of paradigm, we all sense that we are working for others that we do not know and do not see. That whatever thing we think we are doing that came from us, we are somehow being undone in our sense of ourselves as autonomous agents in a world of our own making. The world keeps getting bigger and bigger, and the forces that govern it and rule it become more and more invisible and inscrutable. And to make it, we must make that world by our own action, by doing it. But it doesn't get easier. Jesus will help us in that. Not just to do bigger and better things now for this world and for the kingdom to come, but to help us to wait, to wait upon him, to wait upon that voice that will tell us where our labors are really well invested? What is their source? What are we called to do? Now we note in all four Gospels that there is a point, the same point in the narrative when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus ceases to do and becomes done to again. And from this point on, right through the cross, he falls silent and places himself in the hands of world powers every bit as corrupt as those who are in power today. Jesus becomes object, not subject. Pacifist, 
not activist. And his action, his doing, becomes passion. Suffering, not just in the sense of pain, though there is that, but in the sense of being done to. Very unfashionable in our culture. Thus, his baptism, which is a sign of what is to come, the logical bookend, if you like, to the cross. Now, if you were to ask John the Baptist, who gave us the text we heard today, that this Jesus, being the one for whom he believes they are waiting, is going to go out in a whimper on the way to glory. He would not believe it. He says, and we've heard it, quote, He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Active enough, I would say. And the expectation, that expectation stays, it stays with the disciples even right to the end when in Gethsemane they try to arm him. The expectation that Jesus will spring into life, kick into action, and kick the you-know-what out of his enemies. But it never happens. It hasn't happened yet. And if you read Revelation, as the Reformers did, and as I do, and as Augustine did, as a piece of history, all about events that were completed in 70 AD, not about what is to come, then indeed... We wait for that mean Jesus to show himself in action. We are left waiting, and we wait still. And in the meantime, the God in whom we live and move and have our being, in whose hands we rest and as whose hands we work, has put himself in our hands. He hasn't just emptied himself of his strength and power. He's given it to us. He has put the outcome of his investment in our freedom to do with his world as he wills or as we will. He's done it in love, and he knows the risk that he has taken. As father, he can be heard and he can be our guide as we seek to live out our role as stewards of his world, or we can follow our own way as ruthless, grasping despots. As a lover, we can follow him, the lover of our souls, or go on our way of exploiters of this planet of one another. As a trusted friend of him who called us, not servants, not slaves, but friends, or as resentful users and abusers, tearing this world apart for more of what we do not need. He watches it all. He watches and waits. And the fate of his world, the world that he loves, rests with us now. He waits. He waits for us to wait on him before we set to work. To wait on him every time we set to work even for him, to pray, to empty ourselves of our power, to open ourselves to his voice, and then to do not what we see needs doing, 
for us, but what we see him doing already. It will never be what we want. It will never but be what we expect. But if we let him do through us at last, we will see all his promises come true, even on the way to glory. We watch and we wait. Amen.